0: Pleasing God by pursuing sexual holiness. There is nothing of their society's obsession or shame about sex in these verses. Rather, the Thessalonians were discovering that their sexuality was in fact an essential part of their discipleship to Jesus. They had each accepted the extravagant grace of Jesus into their own complicated sexual histories. Some of those Thessalonian Christians would have found the way of Jesus to be incredibly safe and liberating after a lifetime of abuse and fear. Others found the way costly, having to repent of previously expressed malevolent power. But all of them would have found the way of Jesus to be a strange and very different path to sexual flourishing. Given the society they came from, how could it be any different? How could the way of Jesus not be strange to them? How can the way of Jesus not be strange for us? Because what these early Christians were discovering was that how they experienced and how they expressed their sexuality was intimately connected with how they experienced and how they expressed God's holiness. I'm going to say that again. How they experienced and expressed their sexuality was intimately connected with how they experienced And expressed God's holiness. That's the connection we must discover as well. And so today I want us to see that God desires us to grow in holiness by entrusting our sexuality to him. That God wants to grow in us, to grow in holiness by entrusting our sexuality to him. Now, I want to acknowledge, some of us have have flashbacks when we hear holiness and sex in the same sentence. We might remember church cultures of sexual purity that always seem to require more from women than from men. Or we're thinking about how some churches seem to elevate sexual sins above all others. Or may God to be out to be a prudish judge. Ready to condemn us in shame for everything that haunts our sexual pasts. So we got to tread carefully today. And thankfully Paul helps us out. Because he shares with the Thessalonians in these verses. Three signs that they are growing in sexual holiness. And because I'm a preacher. We're talking about Sex. I made all three of these signs start with the letter S. <laughs> surrender, self-control, and sacrifice. God wants us to grow in holiness by entrusting our sexuality to the Holy Spirit. And the three signs Paul and his co-authors point to are surrender, self-control, and sacrifice. So let's start with the first of these signs. The first sign of growing in sexual holiness is that we surrender to God. Can you say surrender? surrender. Verse 1 marks the transition in this letter. Paul has been encouraging, has been uh, uh, supporting, has been showing his thankfulness To the Thessalonians for their faithfulness to the gospel in the first three chapters. It's been all about the gospel. You could say the first three chapters are the theological foundation for Paul's gratitude. And then here in verse 1, there's a transition. As for other matters, Paul's about to get practical. Paul's about to show the implications Of those first three chapters. And what's the first theme that Paul lifts up? What's the first implication of the gospel that Paul lifts up? It's sexuality. But more specifically, it's sexuality within the context of holiness. When Paul's talking about holiness, the Greek word he uses has to do with a process of becoming holy. And this point about holiness is not a minor thing. This and the importance of sexuality within the context of holiness is important for Paul. Three times he says, we instructed you, or we gave you instructions. Paul says, we ask, we urge, we told, we warned. This stuff matters. But, here's the thing. Sexuality matters for Paul, not because the Thessalonians messed up. And I think that's how a lot of us often experience these conversations about sex. Oh, we messed up, so now we're going to come down hard on you. But Paul comes to the Thessalonians and says, you're doing great. So you see, there is an inherent importance to sexuality within the context of holiness. This is not about you messed up. Now let me tell you the right way to go. This is, it's just important all the time. We make mistakes when we think that the Bible is either all about sex or it's not about sex at all. Some of you grew up in youth groups where you're like, I guess the whole Bible is about sex. (laughs) And then there are other traditions where it appears that the Bible has nothing to say at all about sex. I actually think Thessalonians, this book to the Thessalonians, is a very accurate biblical representation of how we engage with sexuality. Because this is the only place in the letter that Paul talks about sex. Just a few verses. There's a lot more going on. But when Paul talks about it, it's very important. You see? You see? That's how Christians think about sexuality. There's a whole lot of other stuff we got to care about a lot. Amen? But we care about sexuality because it has to do with holiness, it has to do with holiness. The word there, holiness, is hagiosmos. And again, it's it's a process leading to holiness. Paul says it's God's will that you should be sanctified. That's the word. Learn to control your own body in a way that is holy. God did not call us, Paul says in verse 7, to be impure, but to live a holy life. So what Paul is absolutely not saying is that we need to be sexually holy in order to be acceptable to God. That's a point that some of you need to hear really, really clearly. Paul is not saying that we must be sexually holy in order to be acceptable to God because none of us would make that cut. This is a process. This is discipleship. This is following Jesus over the course of our lives to become more and more like Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the loudest note in your head right now should be the note of grace. And not shame. This is the process of following Jesus. This is the process of becoming more and more like your creator. This is all about grace. And in the context of sanctification or becoming holy. It maybe makes sense that Paul's first sign of growing in sexual holiness. Is surrendering our sexuality to God. Because becoming more like God requires us surrendering to God. Would you agree? It is God's will, Paul writes in verse 3, that you should be sanctified. That you should avoid sexual immorality. Now the word there for sexual immorality is a broad word. It's the Greek word "porneia." You can guess Kind of what the word has to do with, right? It's actually much broader, though, than maybe where our minds would immediately go when we hear that word. It's just—it's a broad category covering, well, sexual immorality, writ. Large. It's the word that Jesus uses when he talks about uh, sexuality in the Sermon on the Mount. It's the word that Paul uses in Ephesians 5 and 3 when he writes, but among you there should not even be a hint of sexual immorality. He uses the word again in Colossians 3 and 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, including porneia, sexual immorality. I would... I would summarize, I would broadly define the word this way. Pornea is an expression of sexuality that rejects God's intentions for sexuality. It's broad. It can look a lot of different ways. And what is God's intentions for sexuality? Boiled down, really specific, really basic, sexual expression, sexual intercourse is to be between a wife and her husband, a husband and his wife, within the context of marriage. Now we're going to see sexuality is much bigger than that but a very basic nuts and bolts definition. Here's the way our denomination says it. Faithfulness in heterosexual marriage, celibacy in singleness, these constitute the Christian standard. And if that definition doesn't make everybody in this room uncomfortable, then we're not paying attention. The vision of sexual holiness that we find Jesus referring back to, Paul referring back to, is a vision that is rooted in God's good creation. In the creation itself. So that when the Pharisees come to Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, and they try to engage Jesus in a religious debate about divorce, and what's the list of reasons that a man can divorce his wife, is it short or is it can you know, for any reason whatsoever, Jesus goes back to the beginning and he says, haven't you read? That at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Paul actually does the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He appeals back to Genesis 2 and 24 for a vision of sexual flourishing that is the opposite of porneia. Sexual immorality is any expression of sexuality that rejects God's intentions rooted in the good creation itself. So here's the bad news. We're all guilty of porneia. Amen? We're all guilty of sexual immorality. As we acknowledge that, there is this call to surrender our sexuality to God. The problem, though, is that in that moment of surrender, if you're anything like me, we have a tendency to justify our porneia, our sexual immorality, by comparing ourselves to the surrounding culture that we happen to be a part of. So for the Thessalonians, as I've already referenced, some of the Jewish members of the church would have struggled with some of the teaching about divorce. Some of the Greek members of the congregation would have struggled with the teaching around same-sex expression and relationships. Some of the Romans in this new congregation would have struggled hard with what it looked like to prepare a young woman for marriage and some of the exploitive practices that were common in that time and place. It's the same for us. We have a tendency to imagine that somehow the culture back then was more aligned with the biblical sexual ethic. We, we, we tend to think that, well, well if we lived back then, then, then this stuff would make more sense. Because this is just more common for people back then. I've heard people say, I've leaned in this direction myself. Well, if, if Jesus had been speaking to our culture... If the biblical authors had been writing into our particular culture, they they would say some different stuff. It would come at this from a different angle. But here's what we need to understand and to accept the call to avoid sexual immorality then was no easier, was no more culturally relevant, was no more palatable. Than it is to us now. God's creational vision. Of sexual holiness. Requires surrender. At every time. And in every culture. Why? Because there is no time. And there is no culture. Which is immune. From humanity's sinful fall. Away from God's good. Creational intentions for the world. Here's the point. We're not all that unique. Our experiences matter. Our struggles are important. The specifics of our lives matter deeply to God. But in this way, we are not especially unique across time and culture. We have more in common with the people that Paul was writing to than we might want to think. We're not that unique. Yes, I know. I know that porn is digitally available to everyone, everywhere, wherever we turn. I know that's a true particular thing about our cultural moment. I know that this particular cultural moment demands that Christians confess the countless times that we have slandered and oppressed same-sex attracted people. Even as we discern together what sexual holiness looks like for all of us, queer people and straight people. I know that the circumstances of your very complicated marriage feel without equal, and divorce seems like the best option, not because your spouse has cheated or abused, but because you're ready for a fresh start. I know that despite claiming to value independence and personal strength, our culture still obsesses about romantic coupling as evidence of being worthy and desirable. I know that our image-obsessed, photoshopped, visually-filtered, body-shaming society instills in you the worst of insecurities and even self-hatred. These are all true, specific, particular points of tension in our day, in our place, that, 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 that can cause tension with the biblical vision of sexual holiness. But I guarantee you, if we lived at a different place, at a different time, we'd have just as many points of tension. They might look different, but they would be just as much a struggle for us. If you and I don't struggle with surrendering our sexuality to God, then it's it's likely that we've simply remade God's vision of sexual holiness into our own image. Or we've, we've remade God's vision of sexual holiness into the image of our particular cultural moment. It's entirely possible that we imagine our identities or our cultural circumstances as being far more unique than they actually are. So here's the application. (laughs) Remind yourself this week, I'm not all that unique. We're not all that unique. Yes, the particularities of your story absolutely matter. But the way of discipleship to Jesus is costly for everybody, everywhere, all the time. And the invitation is for us to join the saints who've gone before us in surrendering to the narrow way of Jesus. The first sign that we are growing in sexual holiness is that we surrender our sexuality to God. Does anybody need a break? Just me? <laughs> The second sign that we are growing in holiness is that we exhibit self control. It is God's will for you that you should be sanctified, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. The word translated as body here is a Greek word that can also mean vessel, tool, can even be wife depending on the context. It's a broad word. So how do we know that Paul is here talking about self-control related to our sexuality? Well, this word can also be a euphemism for genitals. So I don't think it's a stretch all allowed to laugh a little bit. (laughs) I don't think it's a stretch to think that Paul very much has in mind here self-control related to our sexuality. Bodies matter. Our bodies matter. You are not a mind contained in a body. You are not a soul trapped in a body. You are a body. You are an embodied person created in the image of God. Your body matters. Somebody say amen. 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 Deborah Hirsch, author of Redeeming Sex, she writes this way. From original creation to the new creation, we are embodied beings. Our personhood and sexuality are tied together with the fact that we are flesh and blood. In other words, our sexuality is not siloed from the rest of our lives. We are embodied and sexual beings. You are always a sexual being. You are never not a sexual being. That's a tough one for us. The last time I preached about sexuality, we had a time of discussion afterwards and and we kept wrestling with that. What does it mean to be a sexual being all of the time? Our culture has so formed us to think about sexuality in such specific, narrow ways that we forget that we are sexual all the time. We are embodied creatures made in the image of God. Hirsch goes on, she says, so we must embrace our bodies as essential part of who we are. We can't disconnect from what we do with them, our bodies. Neither can we reject certain parts of our bodies, even in attempts to be more spiritual. So what is self-control? My sense is that for many of us when we think about sexual self-control, we're thinking about gritting our teeth, trying really hard to do something, to not do something. So I want to remind us that self-control comes after surrender. In other words, sexual self-control depends on first surrendering to God. Or we could say it this way, I think. Self-control, sexual self-control begins in worship. Yes, that's good. Begins in our surrender to God. Paul here is contrasting this self-control with those who don't know God. But we do know God. And our knowledge of God provokes worship. We don't know God just to know things about God. We know God, we're encountered by God, and our worship of that God is provoked. Christian self-control. Control, when it comes to our sexuality, depends on our worship. Again, we need to hear the note of grace, of grace, of grace. Remember, this is the process of holiness. Paul reminds us right here. He says, learn to control. Again, this is not there's not a a doorway of sexual holiness that we need to make sure we're perfect as we walk through in order to be acceptable to God. This is a process of becoming more and more like God. Your self-control never makes you acceptable to God. Some of you need to hear that today, because you're really good at self-control. You're really good at controlling thoughts, urges, desires, plans, anxieties. You're really good at it. You're really religious. You're the elder brother. And you need to hear today that your self-control, if it doesn't come after surrender to God, is a bunch of filthy rags. It does not make you acceptable to God. Our self-control is an expression of a fruit of our surrender to God. It's all dependent on the grace of God. so, if, self, if sexual self-control is a sign of growing in holiness, what can that actually look like? Paul helps us. He uses two words, holy, again, and honorable. So our, our, our self-control is, is holy. W- what, is, what does that mean? It means that God's desires for our sexuality are our standard. God's desires are our standard. Again, the contrast here is, is with those who are ignorant of God, who don't know God. What does this mean? It means that how we express our sexuality has to look different from those who don't know the God revealed in Jesus, who indwells us through the Holy Spirit. In the early church, one of the ways that this, this holiness plays out as it relates to self-control is that women were seen as fully human apart from any man. And so the, 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 the church experienced significant growth among women because they found a place where they were fully human apart from any man, apart from their father, apart from their brother, Apart from their husband. So a woman who did not feel called to be married was still fully human. Wasn't forced to become a prostitute or had to live on the street. A a woman who became a widow wasn't forced to marry her husband's brother. Or wasn't forced to fend for herself. And so we see all kinds of language in the New Testament about how widows are being cared for. Why is that such a big deal? Because women are seen as fully human apart from any man in the context of the church why because god's standard was the measure for one's sexual holiness the other word that paul uses here is honorable honorable has to do with being other centered paul's contrasting this honor with self or excuse me with passionate lust Passionate lust we can think of as self-centered sexuality, self-directed sexuality, a sexuality that is bent in on itself for one's own self-determined purposes and pleasures. Paul says, no, your self-control is to be honorable. It places others' needs first. Now maybe where our minds go most quickly, and this is not a bad thing, is between a a, a wife and her husband, a husband and his wife. Where spouses are, are putting the needs of the other in front of their own needs. Spouses, we ought to, you ought to be having regular, healthy, vulnerable, open conversations about sex. You ought to be checking in with each other. You ought to be demonstrating an honor and other centeredness in your own marriage when it comes to sexuality. No amens to that? <laughs> but I suggest that, that honoring one another with our sexuality is absolutely not limited to married couples. I want to think for a second about those of you who are single and who are purposefully and faithfully celibate in your singleness. Choosing the way of celibacy as faithfulness to Jesus' call in your life. I'd like to suggest to all of us this morning, but especially to those of us who are married, that there is absolutely nothing in our culture that affirms the celibate faithfulness that our brothers and sisters are pursuing. That they are utterly alone in our culture in their pursuit of living, faithful, celibate lives out of their sexuality. And those of us who are married don't know what that's like. Uh, Maybe if you've been married a month, you still remember, but like after two months, you don't remember what that's like. You forget, we forget. So for those of us who are married, I want to talk to the married people, honorable sexual self-control will involve purposefully understanding the experience of our celibate single sisters and brothers. It will involve developing a deep empathy so that we're in, when we are in that place or we're watching that movie or when we hear that comment, we immediately think of our sister or our brother and what that moment feels like to them. Can I give you an example of this? As an adoptive parent, every time an adopted person is portrayed in the media, I immediately notice it. I immediately notice how that person is portrayed, what assumptions, what stereotypes are, 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 are attached to that adoptive person so married people we need to be able to develop the same kind of empathetic response for those in our community who are purposely pursuing celibacy in their singleness does that make sense so that every time there's that snide remark every time there's that like we feel that thing ourselves we feel that thing ourselves so that we can be supportive and a step beyond that Contrary to so much of our contemporary church culture, this kind of honorable self-control must involve a humble curiosity from those of us who are married about how God wants to form us and lead us and lead the church through their, through your celibate sexual faithfulness. That sounds weird to say that right now, but can I just remind us that for most of church history, that was normal. That for most of church history, people who were purposefully living out their discipleship in celibate singleness, they, they, they have places of authority in the church, places of teaching in the church. The assumption was that, that these were people who, who were setting themselves aside to hear from God, not just for their own good, but for the good of the whole church. Man, we've gone a significantly different direction. Would you agree? What does exhibiting self-control over our sexualities look like? Here's how I would sum it up. It looks like fully embodied people reflecting God's standard of holiness by centering the needs and experiences of others above our own. Self-control over our sexualities looks like fully embodied people reflecting God's standard of holiness by centering the needs and the experiences of others above our own. So here's the application. First, remember that self control begins in worship, begins in surrender. And then ask yourself Does the way I experience and express my sexuality reflect God's holiness and honoring others? The second sign that we are growing in sexual holiness is that we exhibit self control over our sexuality. Lastly, The third sign that we are growing in sexual holiness is that we love sacrificially. It is God's will for you that you be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. And then in verse six, and that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. Surrender leads to self-control, leads to sacrificial love but maybe not wronging somebody or not taking advantage of somebody seems like a pretty low bar. Like, is that actually love? So I want to contrast this with our our current cultural moment. I would call it our our cultural moment of consent. (laughs) Washington Post columnist Christine Emba wrote last year a column about the sex ed orientation that all incoming freshmen attend at her own alma mater of Princeton. After a play for all these incoming freshmen about sexual assault, Emba writes, an administrator took pains to define the term consent and to discuss the gray area between a clear yes and an absolute no. It was described as a contaminated space where to engage in sexual activity was to assume varying amounts of risk. This was where it began to strike me as odd in a way that it hadn't back when I was one of those 18-year-olds in the audience. Something was missing about the conversation, which seemed awfully cold-blooded. The discussion was all about consent, but it was only about consent. She goes on, While we are much better at calling out bad behavior, we haven't come to an agreement on what's good. Consent is the line we use to separate the acceptable from the unacceptable, but, but, but it's thin and often detached from a real understanding of the human person. While consent is a helpful legal framework for risk avoidance, it too often allows us to bypass questions of respect, relationship, and care. And then she asks, Is the worst thing about taking advantage of a drunken classmate really the fact that you didn't get her to mouth yes first? I want to be clear, I'm actually very glad about the emphasis in our broader culture about sexual consent. I think maybe within a society in which transactional power is the norm, a culture of consent might be the best culturally that we can hope for. But as Emba points out, a sexual ethic that is only about consent is pretty cold-blooded. It certainly lacks love. Christian sexual holiness is altogether different. And we see this when Paul refers to the people he's writing to as brother and sister. (laughs) This is a really important starting point that we could miss. Paul's starting point is the full image of God humanity in the other. The starting point is never my desires, never my wants. Never my needs. The starting point of the Christian sexual ethic is always the full image of God, humanity in the person that I'm encountering. And then Paul goes on to say that that in those relationships we are never to do wrong or to take advantage of each other. In other words, we are to want the best for one another. I have to submit my needs to yours. What does it look like to love sacrificially through our sexuality? Well again, maybe obviously we first go to spouses and and thinking about how spouses might submit to one another even in sexual intercourse and and how that can play out. And yes, absolutely. But even there it's complicated. Studies show that in, in our day by the time boys turn 13 they've already encountered pornography. And for girls it's the age of 14. And studies have also shown that that in recent years, this pornography has become more and more violent. That this pornography more and more shows men, not just in positions of power, but of dehumanizing and demeaning power. And shows women as being completely passive and willing to accept whatever harsh thing is, is asked for or required for by the man. This, I would contend, is the primary sexual formation of our young people. That the primary way our young men and young women's imaginations are being formed about what sexuality is, about what is good, about what is right, about what healthy relationships look like, are being formed by this kind of pornography. So I'd suggest that even in the context of marriage, those of us who've been formed by a pornographic culture. Even we have lots to unlearn and to learn about sacrificially loving one another in the context of our sexuality. Are you with me? But I think there's less obvious ways that we love each other sacrificially through our sexuality. I think about our kids a lot. I think about those high school students that die. I think about our own young children. I think about the way that even we... (laughs) Christian people how our language is littered with sexual innuendo. We don't even notice it. We don't call it out. I think about how our dollars support sexually graphic entertainment. I think about the ways that we're surrounded by ads that turn sex into a commodity and which far too often turn women from active agents of their own sexuality into passive objects upon which male fantasies are projected. And how we walk past those ads and drive past those ads and we don't say anything about them to our children who are being formed by those ads. Church, are we willing to interrogate the connections between our own sexual appetites and our own sexual apathies and the sexual confusion and shame and abuse that our own children face. That would be loving one another sacrificially via our sexuality. That would be loving our children sacrificially through our sexuality. Or I think about the spouse who is being abused in her marriage. And the way that so often this is covered up in secrecy and shame and despicable theology. Church, are we willing to set aside for a minute our own needs, our own priorities, whatever's happening within our own sexual lives, to see the experience of that spouse, to see beyond the lies and the deception and to be present to that? It's very common, church would be a way that we could love sacrificially growing in sexual holiness involves seeing one another as embodied image bearers of the living God our embodiment can never be reduced to our sexuality but it can never ignore our sexuality so loving sacrificially means placing the needs of vulnerable children above your own sexual needs Loving sacrificially means placing the needs of that married couple struggling with infertility over your own needs. Loving sacrificially means placing the needs of your same-sex attracted friend above your own needs. Loving sacrificially means placing the needs of your friend who is accepting the difficult and costly call to celibacy above your own needs. That is the third sign that we are growing in sexual holiness, that we love sacrificially through our sexuality. I'm almost done. I promise, Candace, I'm almost done. I'm almost done. Okay. All right. God wants us to grow in holiness. By entrusting our sexuality to him. It is God's desire to transform all of our embodied selves more and more into his likeness. How we experience and how we express our sexuality is not tangential to our discipleship. Rather, it is one of the primary ways we grow in holiness. Like the Thessalonians, we inhabit a society whose sexual ethics at times seem relative and at other times seem locked in to the whims of the powerful. As Christians, our standard is different. Our standard is God's holiness and our ethic is marked by surrender, self-control, and sacrificial love. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should grow in holiness. In other words, God desires you to become more and more like your creator. God longs for you to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. God longs for you to be courageous and true in every situation you face. It's God's intention through his spirit's presence that you overflow with love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Can I tell you this morning that God did not move heaven and earth to slap a few moralistic band-aids on your sin? The son of God did not empty himself of glory, allow evil to crush his head and our sins to drain his life, to make us just a little bit more optimistic about our day to day. The Holy Spirit of the living God does not abide in you to provide an an occasional spiritual hit, an an occasional spiritual pick-me-up. God wants to turn you inside out. God wants to raise dead things to life. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You see, because we are embodied sexual creatures, is there anything surprising about God's desire that we entrust our sexuality to him? Is there anything surprising about the way that our sexuality is in fact a path to holiness? Surrender your sexuality to the one who created you as a sexual being. Surrender in worship to the creator. Open your hands to the shame you have kept clenched for so long. To the aspirations you fear releasing. To the complexities of living faithfully within with all that makes our time, and our place unpredictable. Exhibit self-control over your sexuality. Turn away from the expectations of a society that elevates R. Kelly and elects Donald Trump and excuses Louis C.K. because after all, his jokes are still pretty funny. Turn away from the expectations of a society that can do no better than consent. Consent. Choose holiness as your standard. Choose honor as your ethic. And finally, church, love one another sacrificially. Within a transactional, dehumanizing culture, look upon the other as the fully embodied image bearer of the living God. Desire their best, desire their flourishing. Submit your desires and your needs to them. In other words, as sexual beings, love your neighbor as yourself. Pay attention, pay close attention to those who have been exploited by a culture that weaponizes sex for the proclivities of the powerful. Submit your needs to theirs. Love sacrificially as God has loved us in Jesus. I am hyper aware that nothing about this journey towards sexual holiness is easy. But take heart. The way of Jesus has never been easy. Take heart. The way of Jesus has always been troublesome. And yet Jesus has overcome the troubles of this world. The way of discipleship, of following Jesus in order to become like Jesus is never easy, but it is always good. It is good Because it is the way of holiness. It is the way of our God who is the very definition of truth and beauty and goodness. And along this journey to holiness, as the prophet Isaiah proclaims, the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in the parched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like watered, a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters never fail. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I'm aware this morning that any we talk about sexuality, we are wandering into tender areas. We are wandering into places where we have strong memories, where we carry in our very bodies the experiences of our pasts and the hopes of our future. And so even in this moment, I pray that if If anything has been said this morning that is distracting us from you, that is distracting us from the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord, that you would pull it from our minds, that you would replace it with a vision of yourself. I pray, Spirit of God, that you would convince us today that that your desire for our holiness is a good desire, is the best desire. I pray that you would convince our hearts today that your standard of holiness is not, it's not a yardstick to measure our failure. It's not a heavy weight to crush down on us when we can't attain it. Would we come to see your standard of holiness as the invitation to follow our Savior more and more closely? As an invitation through the power of your Spirit to actually become more and more like the people you created us to be. So I pray that you will help us to surrender to you again today to worship you in spirit and in truth with all of who we are, including our sexuality. I pray that you would show us, give us an imagination for a self-control of our sexuality that is both holy in that it is distinct from the standards of our culture and honorable in that it always places the needs of others above our own. I pray that in the pattern of our Savior who loved us to the end, that we would love one another sacrificially. That there would be none among us today who would be asked to bear more of this burden of the narrow way of Jesus than any of the others of us. That we would come to see one another clearly to serve one another humbly, to love each other sacrificially. Jesus, I pray for healing for those of us who need to be put back together today. I pray for those of us who have continued to condemn ourselves because of decisions that we have made, for temptations that we continue to succumb to. I pray that your grace would be applied thick and heavy today I pray for those of us who find ourselves confused and turned in knots by the complexities of our own, our own culture, our own time. Jesus, would you increase our faith that we could follow you in spite of the complexities. That we could trust you even as we don't have it all figured out. I pray that you would be forming us into a people that would be both safe and holy for everyone you call here. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. We're gonna receive the offering now. Guests, if you could put your welcome card, please, in the basket so we could... Follow up with you and welcome you. The prayer requests also go in the offering basket. We're going to worship a little bit together. And uh, Pastor Michelle and I are going to be available to pray for you as we worship. But the altar at the cross is also open to you as well. One of my hopes for our church is that we will come to see ourselves more and more as embodied creatures. (laughs) who respond with all of who we are to God's revelation in our lives. So I invite you as you worship to kneel, to stand, to come to the cross, to be prayed for today, and whatever it is that the Spirit has spoken to you. And so God, now please receive these tithes and these offerings. Jesus, I pray that they would be an act of worship and love to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So i just ask after the benediction, if you're ready to go, You just kind of maybe exit quietly and greet people, hang out in the back. Um, I just going to ask the team to keep playing for just a little bit. So if you want to stay in worship, if you want to come and pray or be prayed for, uh, we'd, like to, we'd like to create a, an atmosphere and a space where you can continue to worship. Um, so can you help me with that? Can you honor that? Let's have our conversations out back. I have a, a few requests for you. Um, If you're feeling in in this moment any shame whatsoever, I want to know that. Pastor Michelle wants to know that. We want to hear that from you. We want to walk with you and and pray with you through that. Because that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Two, um, if there's a way that we as a church can be more helpful to you as you seek to live a sexually holy life. We want to know. If you feel like, you know, my experience, my identity, my past, my hopes. um, I'm I'm having a hard time knowing how those resonate in in this community. We want to know that. We want to do what we can to to walk with you. But also to shift what we can shift. To make sure that that you're following Jesus closely in this area. Does that make sense? Um, And then the last thing. Um. oh no here's one oh, sorry one more thing if you're if you're angry at me right now come and talk to me too you you feel like man I just totally disagree with that. da 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 that's okay that's okay you think we all agree with each other all the time here no I promise you that's not what the church is about but if you find something like oh I just really that's okay but I'd love to hear that from you I don't want you to carry that with you And then lastly, I brought 10 copies of this book, Redeeming Sex. I quoted out of it. This is one of my favorite books on this um, very, very important topic. They're just here for you. First 10 people, don't knock over the projector. I think it costs a lot of money. Um, But they're here for you. If I run out and you really want a copy and you can't afford it, I'll buy it for you. Um, Really well-rounded, pastoral, sensitive, biblical. Uh, so I'd, I'd love for you to grab one of those if, if that'd be helpful to you today. Okay? So we're going to leave worship open. We're going to pray for those who want to be prayed for. The, the, the altar's open. Um, if you're on the setup team, Amanda's going to want to see you in a little bit in the Kids City Room. Um, but would you, just, would you mind extending your hands for the benediction? So Spirit of the Living God, we ask that you would be tender and gracious and merciful uh, to us today. We ask that you would speak truthfully to us, that you would move powerfully among us, God. But we're a fragile people. Uh, We can only take so much. And so would you be gentle and kind with us? Would you be generous and gracious with us even today? Would you speak and sing and proclaim your truth over us today? Would you show us again a vision of who you are in your splendor, in your holiness, in your perfection, in your righteousness, in your justice, but also in your mercy, also in your grace, would a tender, incarnate Son of Jesus uh, be our model? Would we draw near to the crucified and suffering Jesus this week, even as we go through our own sufferings? God, please, please keep us on the journey of holiness. Please, please, please be, uh, help us to, to be more and more like our Creator God, more and more like the one that you envisioned and imagined us to be when we were still in our mother's wombs. Keep us safe this week. Let us testify in our words and our actions to who you are. Bring us back to share those stories next week. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. Stick around, worship, be prayed for, or quietly move into the lobby to greet each other. Go in peace.